Our scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is God's word. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And um, John is stated to be Jesus' closest friend. And he answers the question through this text, who is Jesus Christ? Essentially, this, the central question that he believes uh, is important for anyone in history to answer, and also the central question in our lives. Um, this text gives us a solid answer, because uh, Jesus' first miracle, his first sign, and as a result, really his calling card, so to speak, is changing water to wine. The scholars say that's very, very interesting, that Jesus would use this miracle to show who he is, changing 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. Why this miracle? And the answer, uh, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the feasts. I am here to fulfill your hunger, to fulfill your thirst. John chapter 7, he says, if you are thirsty, come to me. That's what he says. So when Jesus changes water to wine, he's saying, life with me is a life of joy. Life with me is a feast. More of all the things that he could have characterized what life with Jesus Christ would be like, he says, at the end of life, at the end of time, we see a party. Some of us love to party. He says, life with me is a party. Life with me is about transformation, a transforming joy. And John's saying, at the end of the story, at the end of time, at the end of history, it's more than just a feast. It's, it's, it's more like a feast. It's more like a celebration, a celebration of joy. One that comes through suffering. One that comes through sacrifice. One that comes through brokenness and humility. And so the only way you can really understand it here today, the only way we can understand it is if you're suffering, if you're broken, if you're, if you're humbled. And so the only way that you can come to him is you say, I really need this. I'm thirsty. There are three points we're going to go through today. The first is who Jesus is. The second is what did he do? And lastly, what does that mean? Very, very simple, right? Very simple, very pedantic. Uh, who Jesus is, what did he do, and what does that mean for us? First, 
who Jesus is. There was a wedding. Verse 1, in ancient times, traditional cultures, in, the, in these weddings, there was a great deal, a, a much larger deal than we see today to have a wedding because these, le- these weddings, these parties lasted anywhere up to seven days, sometimes ten days. And so you have to constantly feed these weddings, these parties, with food and with drink, with wine. And the key to that wedding then was the wine. You had to have great wine in the beginning, and as people start to drink too much, over seven days, the wine would slowly kind of tailor off into lesser quality wine, right? But the wine made the feast. The wine made the party. And it was the groom's family's job to make that feast a great feast. So you had to supply just enough wine to last all through that week. But we learn here, verse 3, we learn very, very early on that the wine was running out. And that was a social disaster in those days. To run out of wine uh, is to bring shame to that family. You would bring shame to the entire groom's side of the family and particularly one person who is the master of ceremonies. I guess that's the closest thing you would have today, the master of ceremonies. But really, he was the lord of the banquet, the lord of the feast. This person's job was to really make the party a real party. And so you would bring shame, public humiliation, It was a shame-based culture then, much like a lot of Asian cultures in today's society. So to create an error this grand, to ruin the party for this many people, those parties had lots of people, hundreds, even up to thousands of people in these parties. To ruin the feast for these people would bring not only public humiliation and shame to that person, but to the entire family on the groom's side, the entire family even on the bride's side, and ultimately, it could lead to even legal ramifications. Lots of, lots of uh, uh, implications here. And so here's Mary, the mother of Jesus. He hears about this disaster about to happen, probably close to the family, and maybe even relatives to the family. And she comes to Jesus, tells him about the situation, and finally Jesus finally decides to do something about the situation. That's a summary. Now, in verse 11, it says, this is the first of his miraculous signs. Here's where Jesus reveals his glory. This is where the disciples start to see who Jesus really is. Now, what did he choose to reveal himself? Did he choose to raise somebody from the dead? To show us his power? Did he choose to heal somebody in the middle of a great crowd? I mean, it was a perfect setting to reveal who he really is. Did he choose to do a great teaching, preach a sermon, to show who he really is? Did he choose to recruit disciples here to show who he really is? His first priority is to come to a wedding among people that he knew and actually bring wine to that wedding. Why this wedding? Verses 7 to 10 tells us about the master of the banquet. The Greek word actually literally means the ruler of the table the ruler of the table, the lord of the feast, the lord of the banquet, his job was to make this party the best party. His job was to make this party a real party. It was his responsibility personally, and that was actually his job. He was paid for this role to make this party a great feast. But they run out of wine. There's nothing he can do to provide this enormous amount of wine for these people. But who supplies the wine in the end? In fact, the master of the banquet says, this is the best wine. Who's the true Lord of the feast? He doesn't get any credit for what he's done. No one highlights Jesus as the person to have done it. 
But who gets the credit? He doesn't get the credit, but the servants knew that it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is saying, this is the pattern by which I will redeem my people. This is how I'm going to do it. Yes, I'm going to bring self-denial. Yes, I'm going to give up credit. Yes, the Christian life is about, there are sometimes laws. The Christian life can be about humility. The Christian life can be about sacrifice. But in your call to worship this morning as we read, we sum up who Jesus is. In the last day, the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of the finest meats and wine, well refined. In other words, he's going to bring the best wine to this feast. And on that mountain, I will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all your faces. All your reproach, all your shame will be taken away forever, for the Lord God has spoken. Jesus Christ is saying, I came to be the Lord of the feast. I've come to bring wine. I've come to bring joy. I've come to restore the wine. I've come to restore the joy. I've come to wipe away your tears. I've come to wipe away your shame. Feast with me. Eat with me. That's what he says. Of all the things that Jesus Christ is, the first priority is to show us that he is the Lord of the feast and you are invited to the table to make the feast a real feast to make the joy a lasting joy. Why is this important? Think about it. Why do most people come to live in a great city? Why do people, we have more people today moving into the city than ever before in the history of the world. They say today 50% of the world's population live in some, just some of the few largest cities in the world. And that number is actually rising, which is why we're starting to see new cities. Cities are starting to burgeon. But why is it that in these large cities, very few people, the proportion of people who actually worship in a church in these large cities is very, very small. Why is that? And it's because of this. Even though a lot of people in these large cities, such as Philadelphia, have grown up in a church, a lot of people have grown up in a church, a lot of people abandon the church, they walk away because what they're saying is, I've grown up. I've come to the city for something else. I've come to the city because I've, I'm looking for joy elsewhere. That's what, that's what they're really saying. I'm looking for joy. I'm looking to increase my options, increase, increase my potential, increase my freedom, increase my joy elsewhere. At this wedding, the wine runs out. At this wedding, the master of ceremonies, he says, it's, I'm empty. But in verses 9 to 10, the master of the banquet, he tastes this new wine and he says, this, this wine that Jesus brought, This wine is the best wine. That's what he says. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, we know, we know, we've heard, we've read that God is good. He's saying, I want you to taste that God is good. That's why Jesus doesn't preach a sermon to out himself. He says, I know you know that God is good. I know you've heard that God is good, but I want you to taste I want you to see, I want you to experience that God is good. I know that you know that God is gracious. I want you to taste, I want you to take it in. I want you to experience God's grace. We experience that in a tender way in our lives. There are days that we are mired in guilt and all it takes is one forgiving person to show you that God is good, to give you an experience of that grace. I want you to taste that graciousness. To be a Christian is to go beyond just believing. To go beyond just believing into a real experience. You're crossing over the bridge to a real experience that God is forgiving, 
that God is gracious, that God is good, that God is powerful, that God is loving. It's one thing to say that I know God loves me, but have you seen that God loves you? Have you experienced that? Have you tasted that? Has that love shaped your life? Has it shaped you? If you say, I know God is wise, I know God is powerful, and yet you're scared, or you're always worried, we're always thinking about money, we're always trying to, you're consumed by every detail of your children, or you're always gossiping about other people, or always angry at other people. To say that I know that God is powerful, I know God is wise, but you don't see his wisdom. You haven't tasted it. The wisdom of God hasn't overshadowed all the other areas of your life, all the other threats of your life, all the other concerns of your life. To say that I know God is gracious, but you're always smug at people, towards people. You can't deal with certain types of people. You're always trying to clear your name with people. You always act like you're right. You're entitled to your rights. Your Your life is not shaped in the heart than by the gospel. Jesus Christ says, you know what? I've come to bring joy. I mean, the best place to be is to recognize that that's who you are. Because Jesus is saying, I can transform that. The only way he's going to be able to transform that is when you begin to realize and and experience how empty and how anxious and how bitter and how angry you are come to him. He says, if you come to me and say they are thirsty, streams of water will flow from you. It's going to overflow. You have to trust. Who, Who is Jesus? He's saying, I'm Lord of the banquet. Trust that only he can bring the ultimate joy in your life. That's the first point. Now, the second point is what did Jesus do? Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, that's a very reasonable request. Mary knows who Jesus is. Mary's heard from the beginning. She's been treasuring up, you know, I believe it's in the book of Luke where it says that Mary's been storing up, treasuring up in her heart who Jesus is, moment by moment. Jesus, she knows the situation, how desperate it is, and she knows that Jesus, her son, is incredibly powerful. So really what she's asking is, can you do something? Can you do something about this? These people that I know. And what is Jesus' response? He doesn't say, Mom, come on, I'm tired. That's not what he says. He actually says, Woman, why do you involve me? A lot of translations here try to soften the language of Jesus by making it sound like he's, you know, he's a little bit more tender. But really what he says is he's actually pretty sharp. He's actually speaking pretty harshly. He's definitely troubled. He's, he sees the situation. His mother's explaining to him the situation. He's definitely troubled by the situation. But he's, and he's troubled, and he says, literally what he's saying is, woman, why do you involve me? Why does he say that? Because he says, my time has not yet come. Why is he bothered by this? Now, on one hand, commentators say, Jesus is around 30 years old. He's single. In his culture, it's pretty late. In his culture, particularly, it's late to be single at 30. And uh, because most people in his culture are married by the age. So on one hand, Jesus is thinking about his own wedding. Right? Most of us, when we attend weddings, we're thinking about our own weddings when we attend these weddings. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven, prepared as a bride, dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice saying, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is thinking about that great day in the future 
when his people, the bride, will fall into his own arms. He's at a wedding. He's thinking about his wedding. Mary comes up and he says, Jesus, these people have run out of wine. They've got no more wine. And Jesus is looking at this situation. He's thinking about his wedding that great day. And he's thinking about the situation. He's looking at the brokenness. He's looking around. He sees the loss. He's looking at the brokenness and the desperation. He's saying one day a transfer has to be made. In order for that great day to happen, a great transfer has to be made. These people are desperate. In order for them to have wine, that great day has to experience a loss. That's what he's saying. That's what he's thinking. And he says, woman, my time hasn't come yet. That time has not yet come. Anytime you see the word time in the book of John, he's referring, John is referring to the word hour. And that hour, anytime you see the word hour in the book of John, because later on you see Jesus says, the hour has come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be lifted up. That hour is always in reference to his death. Jesus is thinking about his wedding. Jesus is thinking about his death. Jesus is thinking, the only way I can get to that day is if I die. And that time has not yet come. And he's turning to his mother. His mother's saying, do something. And he's looking at the lost. They've run out of joy. They're running out of wine. And he says, yes, I know that there's desperation. I know that people are joyless. I know that there's brokenness because there's joylessness. But that time here specifically has not come. The ultimate time has not yet come. But I'm looking forward to a day when my bride will be dressed beautifully. And so what does he do? Notice where he goes. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that were used by, Jesus, by the Jews for ceremonial washing. These jars were a symbol of the law. They were a provision for cleansing because the ultimate cleansing hasn't come. So every year or regularly, people would undergo a very provisional ceremonial cleansing, a washing, until the, looking forward to the ultimate day of cleansing. So you have the cleansing and the wedding and the brokenness and the loss and the desperation and the sin, and that's life. And Jesus is here at the center point as a centerpiece of that, knowing that a day will come for the ultimate cleansing, the ultimate marrying. And he says, he's looking here, and he says, I want you to fill these waters up. I want you to fill these jars up. And they, the, the servants, they do exactly as he says. They fill it up to the brim. And really what's going on here, Jesus is saying, I'm looking forward to the day when my bride will be dressed beautifully for me. But the only way that my people will get my embrace, the only way my people will get my love, the only way that they're gonna, I'm going to be able to lift my cup with joy with them is if I'm cast out instead of the master of the banquet. As the master of the banquet, the real banquet, I must be cast out so this master of the ceremonies will be redeemed. I have to experience the suffering. I have to experience the trial. I have to experience the shame. I have to drink the eternal, the eternal cup of justice for you. And that's why in the Last Supper, Jesus says, this wine, this wine is my blood. And he says, I won't be drinking of it again until you are with me. He says, this wine is my blood. He says to his disciples, the next time when you drink with me, it's going to be in glory. The next time we'll be able to celebrate will be that day. It's why he says to his father at Gethsemane, let this cup, 
Let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I am willing to drink the eternal cup. That wine that I'm going to drink will be a wine of wrath, will be a wine of judgment and justice. If that is your will, he's talking about his death. He knew that the only way that he can raise his cup with us in joy is if he first drinks the cup of eternal justice alone. He has to get the wrath so that we experience the joy, the access of being in him, the joy of the presence of God, access to God. Now, he knows if he doesn't do this, this master of the banquet is cursed. He knows he needs to reverse that curse. How does he reverse it? He knows that one day he will reverse the curse altogether. How's he going to do it? Now, what do I mean by that, reversing the curse? When Jesus turned water into wine, he's doing a very, very specific thing. He's looking back to centuries ago, millennia ago, when God through Moses in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, he turned water into blood. He turns water into blood, the River Nile. In those days, the Nile River for the Egyptians. The Nile River was their life. It sustained their life. It cleansed them. It gave them food. It gave them joy. It was the centerpiece by which they, that shaped their lives. The Nile Delta was the most fertile region in really the known world at that time. And so that area sustained and gave and was the meaning of life for these people. And so... When Moses takes his staff and turns this water into blood, what was he saying? These Egyptians, they worshipped the water as their God. They worshipped the Nile as their God. And so what God was doing was he was striking the Nile with judgment. It turned to blood. And so he was striking the Nile, and really what he was saying was, now I'm putting a curse on that which you sought after as your life. Now, that is nothing new. In Genesis, we see the curse. He says, if you go after work as that which is going to be the centerpiece of your life, you will be cursed. If you go after relationships as the centerpiece of your life, you will be cursed. If you go after your children, they will be a curse to you. If you go after your marriage as the centerpiece of your life, it will be a curse to you. Your wife and your husband, the husband and wife will be at enmity with each other. He says, there's not a single thing apart from me if you put as the center of your life that will not become a curse for you in the end. And for these Egyptians, it was the Nile. It was the water. And Moses struck it, and it became a curse. It became blood. Blood represents death, death, and judgment, and curse. That's what it meant. So where there was sustenance, there's now deterioration, decay. Right? The fish were coming belly up. It created a cascade of events to come which led to the other plagues. Where there was life, there would be death. Where there's joy, now there will be mourning. Where there was wealth and richness, now there will be poverty and destruction. Jesus Christ, when God is looking at this, and God was doing, what he was saying is, only I can bring life. Only I can bring sustenance. Only I can cleanse you. Only I can bring you joy. I'm the ultimate richness. Be wealthy, be rich in me. That's what he's saying. So when Jesus is turning water to wine, what he's, and, and what he's saying is, I am bringing wine to you. I'm restoring joy. Why? Because the wine is my blood. 
I will be cursed. I will face the judgment. I will spill the blood. My blood will be, he says, take this wine. This wine is my blood poured out for you. That's what he's saying. And so when he sees the wine, he's thinking of his own wedding. He's thinking about the blood that's going to be spilt for those he loves. That's the only way the curse is going to be reversed. We taste the wine because Jesus tastes the suffering. Before, the blood was a curse. The blood that was spilled was a curse. But Jesus suffers the curse on the cross. Why? So that we can get the sweetness. We can have the joy. The blood represented the mourning. The blood represented the pain and the agony and the suffering and the curse. But on the cross, it was Jesus Christ. His blood was spilled. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm experiencing the ultimate mourning, the ultimate loss. My God, the center of my life has departed from me. And as a result, I'm experiencing the ultimate loss, the ultimate pain, the ultimate agony, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate curse. Jesus Christ separated from God, cast out as the master of the banquet, cast out, drank up the full wrath of God down to the very dregs until there was not a drop left. So we can taste the wine, we could be at the feast, we could have the joy, we can experience the blessing of God. Look at the mercy of God. Look at the beauty of God. Look at the love of God. Look at the endurance of Christ. The endurance of Christ. That the blood will be poured out, spilt for us to endure the pain and the agony to the end. To the end. To refuse any medicine. To refuse anything that would numb. He says he's going to endure it in full. Now, he did this for his love. He's thinking, do you know? I mean, it said in Hebrews chapter 12, he said that he did this. He endured the scorn. He endured the shame. Why? It said for the joy that was set before him. He's thinking about the coming joy. He's looking at, do you know, on the cross, that meant that he was thinking about from the first miracle to the ultimate miracle of the cross. He's on the cross thinking about that coming joy. He's suffering the mourning so that you will never have to cry again. Do you see that? He's suffering the ultimate suffering so that you would not have to suffer, so that you would have the ultimate joy and blessing. So we can taste the wine. So on the last day of the great feast, we get to fall into the arms of Christ. And everything sad will come untrue. And every curse that you've ever experienced in your life, every emptiness that you've ever experienced, every pain that you're experiencing right now will one day be undone, will become untrue. Jesus himself, it says actually in Revelation 21, he will wipe away, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes so that all that's left is celebration and courage and patience and hope and grace and love and power, and glory, and forgiveness, and courage. That's what's going to be left. Here the wine's running out, but there it's your tears that will go dry once and for all. That's what he came to do. That's what he did. Do you trust that? Do you see that? What does it do for us? What does it mean? 
Well, the first thing it does, the first thing Jesus does is he directs his servants and he says, I want you to take some of that wine, bring it to the master. And by this point, everyone's been drinking for a while. So most people probably can't tell the difference between the good wine and the bad wine, really, the lesser wine. The only one person who would be able to tell, the only person who's clear-minded is the master of the banquet, the most desperate man in the story. We talked about this. His life depended on the wine. His financial reputation is going to be at stake. It was said in some legal accounts, some ancient accounts, that the master of the ceremonies, the master of the banquet, if the wedding actually failed, they were the people, not just the groom or the bride, but the people could sue the master of the banquet if they didn't have a good, good enough time. A desperate case was this man. No matter how hard he could try, he would be empty. No matter how hard he tries, he was helpless. The wine is run out. There's nothing he can do. Verse 10 Then he called the bridegroom aside. And he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine for last. Who gets the credit here? It's the bridegroom that gets the credit. The bridegroom gets the credit for all of this. Jesus does the work. The groom gets the credit. You know why? Because Jesus is not just a master of the banquet. He's really saying, actually, I am also going to be the true bridegroom as well. I'm the ultimate groom. But that's actually a picture of the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. You can't say, you know, Lord, I would love to have a relationship with you. I tried really hard, you see. I've done everything you've ever asked. I've obeyed all the laws. I've gone to every service. I've, I've performed every good deed. You're not going to taste joy that way. You're just going to end up empty like the master of the banquet here. You're trying to be the master of the banquet, you see. And you're going to end up empty. What you have to say is, I tried and I've blown it. I was at my best and yet I'm still empty. It's not enough. I'm out of wine. And when I relied on that, I've lost all my joy. There is nothing about me that's good. I have no rights. I don't deserve anything. But please give me the credit for what Jesus has done. Please give me the credit. Please give me the righteousness of Christ. Jesus has gone to the cross and provided the wine and shed his blood so that I can enjoy it. So ought for his sake, on the basis of his work, on the basis of his righteousness, will you accept me? Will you love me? Friends, there are days, especially the last couple months for me, okay, where, and I'm being serious when I say this, I stand in front and there's literally a voice in my head telling me that I should step down. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying step down from the sermon. I'm saying leave. That Metro will be better without me. There are days when, especially over the last several months, where I question if my character and wisdom and integrity and poise, it's all a sham. And that I don't have that. I question that whether or not I could lead. And you know, after a- wrestling over that for months, you know what I've concluded? I'm actually right. I don't have the character 
or the wisdom or the integrity or the poise to lead, to love the way I'm called to love, to lead the way I'm called to lead. When I focus on that, it's like an accuser and an enemy that rips me apart, especially when I see certain people. It tears me apart. It takes you to the depths. Now, I know that if that's a, outside of my own existential experience, we all question that. There are times when we all question that. But you know what is your comfort? Let me remind you of what restores joy. First, you have to realize it never depended on your character and integrity to begin with, first of all. It's the righteousness of Christ transferred to you, applied by God's Spirit in union, in marriage with Christ. In union with Christ. That's what it depends on. If you're going to sit there and rest on your own wisdom, it's going to take you to a certain extent. Maybe some people even further than others. Maybe a little bit further than others. But eventually, it's going to go to pot. It will. Because you're not wise enough. You're not. If you're going to rest on your own looks to, to feel beautiful, it can work sometimes. But most of the time, it will fail you. And if that's all you think you have, it will take you to the depths. Admit it. You don't have to admit it to me. Admit it, though. Admit it to yourself. If you're going to rest on your pedigree as the thing that's going to make you feel a sense of worth, it's going to make you angry. You know why it's going to make you angry? Because once you, it works great in the academic world to a certain degree, but once you start working, there's a very even playing field. And what happens is people who actually have a lesser pedigree than you actually get promoted, sometimes quicker than you. They may have certain other wiles about them that allow them to do that, but they will rise up. Some of you, maybe you're that person that's rising up. And if you're that person that's rising up, you had to put a little bit extra because you don't have the pedigree. Now, both people are running in cycles. You can do that, and it will, take, it will make you angry, and it will make you bitter. It will make you proud. It will, ma- it will put you in an endless cycle of comparing yourself with other people. And you, even if you feel like you're winning, will lose because your soul will decay. And if you combine all these things together... Ask yourself if you have the character or the integrity or the wisdom or the poise to get through 80, 90 years of life. Ask yourself that. It's based on Christ's character and Christ's wisdom and Christ's integrity and Jesus' poise. Look at his grace. Look at his love. Look at his mercy. You have a tough time forgiving? Look at his compassion. You can't be patient with certain people? Look at his endurance on the cross for you. You have a tough time. You're struggling with certain sins in your life? Look at his holiness transferred to you. If you don't understand that, you're always going to be anxious. You're always going to be angry. You will never experience the joy of Christ. In other words, there will be no power in your life And as a result, you will never understand the miracle itself. 
there would be no miracle in your life. There are, types of peop- there are certain types of people in this room right now. Some of you are drinking, but you're drinking from the glass of anxiety. Some of you are drinking from the glass of shame. Some of you are drinking from the glass of envy. Some of you are drinking from the glass of pride. But one thing is true, none of us are satisfied if that's what we're drinking from. Because anxiety says, I expected my life to be different. And it's not. It's like this instead. Shame says, no one will ever be able to accept me for the things that I've done. Envy says, that person does not deserve it the way I deserve it. Pride says, that person isn't worthy. I'm worthy. And that's what makes us angry. That's what makes us bitter. That's what makes us anxious. That's what makes us just working and working. You got to give it up. Give up the fight. Give in. The hardest thing to give is in. Right, give in. Admit that you're done in. Admit that you're empty. And then see the promise that you have in Christ. See the sacrifice of Christ for you. See the love of Christ for you and taste of that and see that he is good. You know what that means? I'm going to close with this. First, that's what prayer is. Prayer, that's what prayer is. Because when you are, it's never as easy to pray as when you recognize who you really are and how desperate you are. You've been trying to be the master of the banquet, the Lord of your feast, and you've come up empty. Pray your worries. Pray your fears. Pray your anger. Pray your tears. Pray your pride. Pray your envy and jealousy. Pray your shame. Pray your anxiety. Pray these things. I'm going to tell you, just logically, if you look at this text, Jesus chose a very dinky, small wedding in a very small town called Cana to do his first wedding. You know what that means? You know why? Why didn't he go into Judea? Why didn't he go into Jerusalem to do the first wedding? There are lots of weddings in Jerusalem. Why didn't he go there? You know why? First of all, it was personal. And secondly, it was small so that you can come to him with small things. That's why. You can go to him even with the smallest things. And he listens. It's a priority to him. Don't you see that? Whether it fits into your, you know, whether uh, uh, you understand or not, pray your confusion. But pray that, you, pray that you can trust. Even the smallest concerns are his. Go to him. Number two, look at Mary. Okay, Mary is the mother of Jesus. She's coming to you with a desperate situation and Jesus is abrupt, even harsh, and says kind of confusing things. And then he starts barking orders, right? That's what he's doing. So like, uh, it sounds like me in a lot of ways. What, what does Mary do? Mary listens. Mary listens. She says, do everything he says. She doesn't fight. She doesn't say, you know, do you know who you're talking to? I, I understand who you are, but do you know who I am? Does, she doesn't do that. She doesn't resist. She listens to the demand. She obeys. Whether it fits into her agenda or not, whether... You can trust right away. You have to trust. Be patient. Even if you feel like your prayers aren't being answered, be patient because Jesus will even transform the prayer over time. Obey. If God is powerful enough to do anything you ask, you've got to at least assume he's wise enough to know when, to know what. You've got to trust. Thirdly, so first pray to obey, right? Thirdly, when you pray, 
That's the mind. When you trust, right, that's the will. When you obey, that's the will. When you go to him crying or anxious, that's the emotions. You know what you're doing? You're worshiping. The mind, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We call that worship. And when you do, you will begin to taste the joy because Jesus Christ tasted all the sorrow. You know what happens? Look at the master of the banquet. Desperate on one hand, empty on one hand. He had nothing to do with what he was about to experience. He experienced grace. He experienced joy. He says, this is the best, and you saved it for last. Look at the progression. There's a desperation. I'm going to give you the entire progression of renewal right now. Okay? There's a desperation that leads to a thirst, that leads to a tasting, that leads to an experience of grace, that leads to delight, that leads to you being convinced that this is the best among all the other joys. It's going to burst you into a real joy, another level of joy, because you're the one that's been rescued. You're the one that's been saved, and it is sweet because it happens over and over and over and over, and that leads to satisfaction. I'm going to say it again. It starts with desperation that leads to a thirsting, that leads to a tasting, that leads to an experiencing, that leads to delighting, that leads to a convincing that leads to satisfaction, a satisfaction. What does wine do? It affects your judgment, right? It changes your behavior, right? Drink of the wine that is Christ. Let that change your judgment. Let that change your behavior. Let that control you. Wine controls, right? Let that change you. Let that control you. Let the blood of Christ poured out for you control you, the wine of his blood. There's an old song. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm going to quote you from a Methodist preacher, a Methodist songwriter, an old Methodist songwriter, died in a plane crash, I believe in the late 70s, right? But it's a, it's a good song. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be. Alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. Today, will you drink of him? Will you come to him? Will you say that you're thirsty and desperate? And then will you taste and delight in the Lord who is good, who is for you, even when you feel like no one is for you, the Lord is for you. Will you trust in that? Let's pray together.